Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, Eric Bischoff here. Now, if you need cash without the controversy, the team at SaveWithConrad.com can help. But don't take my word for it. Uh, my name is Jeffrey Munson. I'm from West Roxbury, Massachusetts. While listening in the car one day with my wife, we both were like, oh, she, he does mortgages. Let's, we should look into this. We've tried to refinance a couple of times and either the, the process was too crazy or we were told we didn't have enough equity in the house yet even after owning it for about 15 years at that point, you guys started servicing Massachusetts and we just jumped all over it. Reached out through the website and Larry actually gave us a buzz and started walking us through the process. And it was just, it was just wonderful. It was a great experience. So we managed to consolidate a lot of debt and also take some money out. And we were still at or below what the value of the house was borrowing in 2005 when we bought the house. Hi, my name is Jeffrey Munson. My wife and I managed to save $1,800 a month and are now paying $400 less each month with SaveWithConrad.com. And unlike the dirt sheets, these reviews don't lie. With over 1,000 five-star reviews, find out for yourself how much Conrad and his team can save you by checking out SaveWithConrad.com and do it today. You'll be grateful you did. NMLS number 65084 Equal Housing Lender. Woo! Welcome to something to wrestle with. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She pooted. There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. Was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. I ain't scared. I ain't scared. Fuck him. You, Bruce. I love you. Double cheeseburger. Double cheese. Double mayo. Double onion, motherfucker. Bruce Pritchard. Let's get to the hell in a cell.
uh, before we do that, we should mention that they're doing an interview backstage with uh, Doc Hendricks, Shawn Michaels, Triple H, China, and Rick Rude. We've got everybody out there. And uh, Michaels very sarcastically says this match isn't for his coveted European title and that it will stay with him. And uh, he wipes his head. And he's sort of making light of the title, or so it seems, with that comment. And then when Hunter goes to say something, uh, they cut away and do a crowd shot instead. What do you remember of this interview? It feels uh, feels like there's more to it than what we see here. What do you mean more to it? I, I thought that the interview was great. It was exactly what we what we were building to, and it was to build that rivalry with Brett and Sean and for Sean to be able to go into November talking about the only reason that Brett now is actually in the main event is because he's with Sean. That was part, that was part of the story. That was part of the whole issue. Um, I thought it was excellent. I, I laughed my ass off through the whole thing, just loving every bit of it. Whose idea was it to put Undertaker and Sean together? Obviously, you have a natural story from the SummerSlam angle with Sean working as the referee and costing Undertaker the title. But are you guys just sitting around one day and say, wow, we've never put them together. What would that look like? And that's 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 it. Thinking, thinking about just great matchups and something new when you're looking for opponents for the Undertaker, which brings us here we didn't have a lot of opponents for the undertaker and we hadn't done anything with sean yet so it was an opportunity to put those two together let's see how they how they gelled and holy cow man we had magic let's talk a little bit about the backstage situation at the time because sean michaels according to the rumor and innuendo had a lot of heat with the click back in the day but now most of those guys are gone, except Triple H is still here. Um, we know what the backstage relationship was like with Brett and Sean. Do you know if Sean had any significant heat with anyone else in the locker room or the office at the time? At this, at this time, Sean was kind of keeping to himself with Hunter and doing his own thing. Sean always had residual heat just for the way that he did things. Uh, in particular, like the the interview that he did, people took that as a shoot. They took that as Sean. Oh God, Sean's just trying to get under Brett's skin as a shoot. They they forget that this is entertainment, folks, right. and that we're telling a story here. And the fact that we're telling this story on television shouldn't that tell you that it's a story? Uh, this is what we're doing. The problem was, was Brett took it personal. Brett took it seriously and felt, oh, he, he's saying those things to get under my skin. Yes, Brett, he is. He's he's saying those things to get under the heartbreak kid, saying those things to get under the hitman's skin. It's a story. And all too often people take what is said on television as, oh, well, that's personal and that's real and they're just trying to get to me. When in reality, it's all about making money and trying to make a story more interesting. And if the performers in the back believe it and they're selling it, then you know the audience is going to believe it and sell it the same way. What was the feeling on Hunter Hearst Helmsley at the time? Did he have any heat backstage? Did Vince see him as a player? Did Vince think at this point he was a mid-card guy? 
what's everybody thinking about Hunter Hearst Helmsley at this point? I think for the most part, he had kind of come out of the doghouse uh, since the the whole um, whatever incident that they did uh, in the garden. Uh, he, he was out of the doghouse, and he was coming into his own, and Vince felt that if he was going to get over, he was going to get over with Sean. So there were high hopes for him. There were people, uh, Jim Cornette in particular, that felt that Hunter was a mid-card guy at best. But he was having the matches that he had with Cactus Jack. He was tearing the houses down, and he was showing that, hey, I can go. And I think Hunter was trying to get out of Sean's shadow a little bit, but he also knew that he needed Sean to get in in the spotlight. Right. So they complimented each other. And we were hoping that, man, we've, we've got another star out of this thing. Let's get to the match. Uh, they say the winner of this match will go on to Survivor Series to face the WWF champion. Shawn Michaels is out first, and in tow are Hunter Hearst Helmsley, China, and Rick Rude. Then The Undertaker comes out, and uh, Taker dominates the early part of the match. Uh, and a few minutes into it, Sean was yelling at Vince and Vince said something like everything is my fault these days. Just kind of an interesting comment because we all know what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, Meltzer's pretty high on the match. It goes 29 minutes and 59 seconds. Uh, and he called it an absolute classic must see, probably five star match. Michaels did everything. And then even more than everything, um, what do you think of the match? I know we're going to break down some of the different spots, but watching this for the first time in a long time, does this still hold up as much as you imagine? 10,000 stars. I mean, it's really hard to argue. This is one of the best matches in company history and probably one of the best matches I've ever seen. You know, it, it it's you and I talked, uh, you and I were talking about something else when I was watching this match. And I said to you, God, Undertaker hadn't, when I was at the point, Undertaker hadn't even made his entrance yet. And I said, God, Shawn Michaels is so good. This match, from start to finish, from the entrances, Shawn made everything mean something. From the time that he asked Hunter and China and, and Rick Rude to get out of the ring so the cage could come down, to Shawn selling the cage coming down, to Undertaker getting in the ring. And the methodical way that Undertaker stalked Sean. And they never they did not rush anything. It was all just methodical. There was no wasted movement. There was no wasted BS just to do something to do it. Every single movement in that match by every participant meant something. And was pulled off to a T the, the simple, just psychology of undertaker, not having to rush. Sean had nowhere to go. He's locked inside of a cell and Taker not rushing and stalking him walking slowly, just, you know, uh, slowly he walked and then Sean trying to flee and then Sean selling on his face. Oh my God, I've got nowhere to go. What the hell am I going to do? Do I climb up the cage? Oh shit. There's a, there's a top up there. It was put together 
to sell every single element of that. We even sold, you know, the, the, the early bump with the cameraman and Sean's face. So now, you know, there's cameramen inside the cell, right? And you know that Sean's already frustrated with them. My God. He said, get out of my fucking face. Ooh, we weren't supposed to hear that. Right. That's Sean being an asshole because you know, he's really a dick in real life. He does those things just to piss Vince off. And then, you know, later on, it, it was when the, the cameraman got taken out. It was, ooh. The lines of reality were blurred so much that everybody sat there and went, is it real? Is it not? Is it entertainment? And it was real entertainment. Some of the spots in this that really are just something to see. Uh, Undertaker show, throws Sean over the top rope to the floor, and Sean lands on his hip on the outside. That's not something anybody should ever do. They do a powerbomb spot on the outside of the ring, and Sean, to sort of counteract it, holds the cage and starts punching the Undertaker. But then the Undertaker manages to tear the grip loose and then sort of slam him into the cage. They do the uh, pile driver onto the steps with Sean oh. delivering the pile driver onto the steps. When they finally get out of the ring, uh, before they do the table spot, uh, or of course, everybody remembers, they go to the top of the cage uh, and then uh, he's throwing Sean off of the side and then Sean kind of standing on the side of the cage has his hand stomped. And then he does what is at that time, probably the most spectacular bump in the company's history. Right, Bruce? Absolutely. And and you go back even before that you go, you go to the bump with the cameraman and Sean, you know, beating the hell out of the cameraman. So we've got to get people. We've got to now unlock the cage to get people in, to get the cameraman out, which is Sean's opportunity to get the hell out of the cage. He can escape. He sees an opening. He gets out. Taker chases him down. Sean does a drop kick on concrete to the Undertaker, and you know that gets that gets missed. And then he he goes for the second drop kick, and Taker catches him. And that's where Sean takes the the bump into the cage, to where he comes back up all bloodied and just uh, bleeding like a stuck pig. The climb up the up the uh, cage, the way that Undertaker had his foot, it, it just was so masterfully done. It wasn't, it wasn't a spot fest. And then Taker climbing up that damn cage looked like a cat going up the cage. And again, they didn't have to rush. They got on top of the cage and took their time. And the shots from up from uh, Krista Fury was the cameraman, the handheld cameraman that was in the ring with his camera pointing up through the top of the cage and you see the blood dripping down from Sean's face onto the camera. And you can even hear the cameraman say, Oh shit. When the, when the blood hits, it, it was all those little nuances. And then as you just lay it out, the bump, Sean taking the bump off the side of the cage through the, the table was spectacular and Taker didn't rush it. Sean didn't rush it. They went through, took another bump on the table, and then now time to get back in. Now you're going to, you know, now we're going home. Now you're going to die. And then the coup de grace. 
the finish. Before you get and, there, um, the slingshot from the outside into the cage where Sean gets color, is that one of the best um, moments for that? I don't know. I know you get weird when I talk about it. But Sean got so much blood here, and the visual of him just covered in blood, thrown from one end of the arena to the other in every possible way, against the cage, on top of the cage, off the cage. And the way he does it on the way up to where as soon as he hits the cage, I mean, Sean's one of the greatest, if not the greatest wrestler of all time, and this match proves it, does it not? Wholeheartedly. And you look at little things like that that explain it all. And I, I dare say, even even for a cage match, you know, hey, I loved it, and I'm 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 an old school guy that that loved a lot of blood and everything. It was a lot of blood, yeah, maybe too much, but at the same time, for that match, for the first Hell in a Cell, it set the tone and it set the bar extremely high for anybody to try and follow that. Well, let's talk about. Um before we get to what we're going to go to, I guess there's lots of rumor and innuendo about who the cameraman was. Do you recall who the cameraman was in this match? I think he was just a local guy. Yeah. Uh, he, an independent worker. Um, yeah. and then whose idea was the hell in a cell. You kept saying it's not a cage match. It's a hell in a cell. When we first started recording here, which is obviously a Vince McMahon ism where he doesn't want to call it cage. He wants to call it a hell in a cell. Did he, was he the guy who originally named it? I believe it was Vince's name, uh, Vince McMahon's name that to come up because it was, it had to do with the undertaker and you wanted to make the structure ominous, dark and ominous. So um, I believe I'm almost 99% sure it was Vince McMahon who came up with the hell in a cell. They wanted to make it different. They wanted to be able to make it so that they could work on the outside of the ring, but still have nowhere to go. And a cage match can be so restrictive because all you've got is the inside of the ring to work. Um, but then it, as they got there, it was it was Pat Patterson who was like, "Wow, oh, I don't know why we got to get out of the cage. Why can't we get out of this? Because it's a fucking cage. It's it's a hell in a cell. We're talking about this this monstrous structure that the only you know there's only one way in and one way out, and, and you can't escape the thing once you're locked in. Um, but Sean had this idea of taking this damn bump. You had to get out of the cage to do it." And Pat came up with the, eh, what if somebody gets hurt inside? We, are, we must get them out. And when the door is open, the silly little bastard, he sees that, and he, bang, and I'm out. And now, fuck you, Undertaker. But then he comes, he's got nowhere to go. He climbs up to the top. And Undertaker, boom, off the cage. So it was it was Sean wanting to take the bump and Sean wanting, Sean wanting to do more and he wanted to do it all around the structure of the cage. So as much as I hated it, I loved it. I loved the execution of it. Um, so let's talk about it. Finally, they're both in the cage. And uh, after the ref bump, 
The Undertaker uses a choke slam off the middle rope and a hard chair shot to the top of the head, and the lights go out. And Paul Bear comes out. And uh, can you recreate the call that Vince McMahon has here? Probably not because I hated it. it, it that, that must be. Oh, my. That's got to be Kane. That's got to be Kane. Paul Bear, it's got to be Kane. Why didn't you like we, that? What's that? Why didn't you like that? I want, I, I, first of all, I wanted silence. I wanted, who is that? And then I want, I just wanted the theater of the mind. Yeah, it's got to be Kane. But how do you know that? I mean, I, I didn't want it to be Kane until Undertaker and Kane had that look in the ring. Right. And Kane did the puppy dog tilt and Taker did the Kane and then say, Oh my God, I think he just said, that's got, and then do it. I wanted the anticipation to last that entire time from the music, the blackout and the music until the face off in the ring to where it's Undertaker who is the first one to say, to look at, to look in his eyes and go, Kane. And the commentators are saying, Oh my God. That's Kane. So I think I think Vince just, you know, felt it at the time and felt it needed more and it, and it needed needed to, to people to know that was Kane. I think everybody knew it was Kane. Right. I just didn't think he needed to say it as many times as they said it before he got to the ring. I don't know why, but it tickles me that that gets you fired up. It does. Well, it's it's, it's storytelling, and, and it's it's what they do now. Right. As you notice now, a lot of times they they do stay silent, and they do let the story just develop in front of your very eyes. And the feeling was was that the the revelation and the unveiling was when Undertaker looks in his brother's eyes and realizes he's alive. Let's um, let's talk about the end of the match here, and then we'll go back and kind of set the stage for Kane. So Kane, of course, here uses a tombstone on The Undertaker, which allows Sean to score the pin. And there's rumor and innuendo that, and you can, I guess, see it when it happens. As Kane picks up The Undertaker with the tombstone, Maybe his mask moved, and he couldn't really see exactly where he was. He's supposed to be giving this tombstone towards the hard camera, but he pivots a few times trying to find it before delivering it. Uh, do you know exactly what happened? Well, no, he just got he got him up, and he when he got him up, they were facing a profile on the hard cameras. He just had to turn to get to the hard camera. He just, when he picked him up, instead of picking him up, and having him set on the hard camera, he picked him up and got him set and then realized he needed to turn to the hard camera. Um, let's talk a little bit about, obviously, Sean gets the win here with Kane delivering this tombstone pile driver. Sean throws the arm over. 
the ref makes a very slow one, two, three, and the bloody, beaten, and battered uh, Shawn Michaels has somehow come out victorious, and now he's not only the European champion, but he's heading to Survivor Series to challenge for the world title. Um, lots of stuff going on here. The blood dropping on the camera through the cage, the cameraman spot, ripping the door off, the Undertaker. Uh, obviously, this isn't the last match between the Undertaker and Shawn Michaels. As you may recall, that following January, they would have a casket match at the Royal Rumble, and that's where Shawn would really ultimately injure his back and wind up causing a, a big pause in his wrestling career. And I think most of us remember the two classic WrestleMania matches they had at WrestleMania 25 and 26, most of which people call the match at 25 one of the greatest wrestling matches of all time. So if for whatever reason you've never seen this, I can't encourage you enough. Go out of your way to watch this Hell in a Cell match from Bad Blood. One of the best matches, if not the best match from 1997, uh, and a favorite of mine. Still, after all these years, my favorite Hell in a Cell match. Uh, as a reminder, the month before at Ground Zero is when we first saw Undertaker do the the uh, the tope, the dive over the top rope, and now here we are at Hell in a Cell. So these guys keep turning the volume up every single time they wrestle, and this match was masterful. Uh, nothing that Bruce and I say to put it over here is strong enough. Go watch it if you haven't already. Let's talk a little bit about the genesis, though, of the Hell in a Cell cage, the actual design. Uh, Cornette has gone on record as saying that he was always a big fan of one of the cage concepts they did down in Memphis. So down there, they had a big cage that would go not just on the ring, but around the ring, which would allow, uh, you know, you, you could go under the ring. People could come out from under the ring. You could drag weapons out. And he also liked the War Games cage because it had a top on it. And obviously that's pretty popular. Uh, because War Games is coming back after all these years to the NXT TakeOver before Survivor Series. So it was his idea, according to Cornette, to combine the two. And he liked this as a way to debut Kane because they had done something similar to this in Knoxville years prior to this when Doug Furness, uh, who was a strongman, came down to the ring and ripped the door off a cage to make the save. Uh, so Cornette is suggesting here that Kane should debut by ripping the door off to really get his power and strength over and then go ahead and have a face-to-face -face with The Undertaker and tombstone him. Uh, how do you remember the actual mechanics of the debut here? We're going to do a Hell in a Cell, and the Hell in a Cell is really to debut Kane? Is that the idea? It was, yeah, it was where we were going to debut Clayton. It was a way to get Undertaker uh, or Sean over Undertaker without Sean just having to beat the Undertaker. And it was a way to debut this new character and this new foe for the Undertaker. I guess it was my, perfect. My point is, though, the actual concept of a match, the actual Hell in a Cell, was designed so Kane could rip the door off the cage. Like, here's this new monstrous thing that uh, the WWE has constructed and this new debuting powerhouse can destroy it too? No, it was no. It, it just happened that way. It happened that the, the hell in the cell and then how do you get Kane involved and it's, well, he can rip the damn door off. And Jim Cornette was was a part of that whole, the whole thing with the hell in the cell and the creation of, 
of the cage itself and in the match and the whole nine yards and Jimmy, without a doubt, hundred uh, percent involved in that. And a lot of that was his idea. Um, I don't remember the, the furnace thing at all. Uh, you can go back hell if you wanted to, what was, what was the name of the, the, the guy that WCW had go down and get the cage RoboCop RoboCop. Yeah. Yeah. No, we ripped it off from RoboCop. No. Just kidding, folks. I need no, that. We didn't. I need that to be the thing that RoboCop was uh, the original Kane. That Kane is a is a RoboCop ripoff. That's hilarious. One hundred percent. Yes, I, I'm, I mean, I'm he's a big, big RoboCop fan. He's a big guy. He's slow and prodding. He had lifts in his shoes. Um, he had a half mask. He didn't sell much of shit. Uh, and he bends steel. He's bending steel. He's running for mayor. RoboCop's running for mayor. Yeah, I'm just kidding. So let's let's talk about that. Um, so Hell in the Cell is an idea that had, I mean, freestyle when you think you guys first start talking about the concept of Hell in a Cell. Is this something that has been talked about for years or a month out, six weeks out? No, probably two months out when we're, when we're getting to the, to the first Sean Undertaker match and then the return. What do you do for a return? Is it a cage match? Do we do, you know, what is there to do something different? And the, the different uh, incarnations of the cage is what came up and the evolution of Hell in a Cell. Seems kind of silly, but is somebody sitting around drawing a sketch of this cage? No. So Probably, uh, probably Kevin Dunn's people when they had it built. So are you just, who's describing this cage to whom when, when it's going into production? I believe, and I'm trying to think, uh, this is a living room conversation. And I want to say that we had it on speakerphone with Vince McMahon, Cornette, myself, I believe Russo was there too. And uh, Vince explaining to, uh, to Kevin, because at that time, Kevin or Steve Taylor, maybe, uh, exactly what he wanted and this is what we need constructed it's got to go all the way around the mats on the outside of the ring and it has a top and uh i want it to be huge um at that time you know it was so damn high we never thought of anybody taking a bump off the damn thing right the original concept was to keep people in uh not (laughs) nobody getting on top of the thing and and doing these crazy bumps so, you know, as, as we got closer to it and everything, and we knew that that was where Kane was going to debut, and as time went on, it just it became that. But no, it was the the Hell in a Cell was not designed for something for Kane to destroy at all. It, it actually became a problem. Is how do you get now Kane involved in this damn thing? It's like, well, he can, he's a monster. He can rip the door off the damn cage. Um, you know what, what people didn't see and what was supposed to happen as well was when, and, and you look back on when you watch it and you realize how important concussions are now. And especially with Kane, we, we added the big bang concussions when his flames would go off. But originally, when the music started and we got into the thing and Kane blew through the, uh, the entryway there, 
if there had been a concussion, we had the entire, uh, there were cage, like cyclone fence, cage netting on the entrance. And we had this uh, fire gel on that. And the da- the stuff was supposed to burn right when he came out. It's supposed to go up in flames and stay on fire for the whole rest of the, the time. And that didn't work. Um, we got like a little poof and then it, it just kind of fizzled out. And then when King got in the ring and did the, did the big gesture for the fire on the four corner posts, it's just so anticlimactic watching it today versus how it became with the big concussions and the big response and everything. I think it would have been a lot better if we had had that hindsight being 2020, but, um, a lot of people listening when you say concussion will think you're talking about CTE. Tell them what you mean. Well, a, a big boom. So when he makes the gesture for the fire and the fire goes off, you're a boom. Uh, that's a concussion. And the idea behind when Kane first came out from the entryway was to have a big boom and have the entire entryway be set on fire and continue to burn throughout the time that, until Kane made his exit. It burned, it burned a little bit, but uh, not nearly like we wanted it to. Take a bite out of summer with HelloFresh from chef crafted seasonal recipes to their new fresh and fit summer menu. HelloFresh brings flavor right to your door. Pre-portioned ingredients help cut down on food waste while step-by-step instructions make cooking a breeze, not a chore. Make your home the hangout for the rest of this summer with all the crowd-pleasing eats. Check this out. You've got backyard bratwurst bars to tangy key lime pies. How about the HelloFresh market? It makes entertaining this summer a cinch. I can't recommend this enough. My wife and I felt like we were in a rut, but no longer. We've got over a hundred different items just from the snacks. You see, there's more to this than just the delicious dinners. You can shop in this HelloFresh market and get everything you need. Now, when it comes to dinner itself and your lunches for that matter, How about calorie smart and protein smart? These are both lunch and dinner options. So if you're looking to get more protein like double J, or maybe you're trying to cut some LBs like Tony Schiavone, HelloFresh makes it easy. They've got something for everybody too, even vegan dinners for you to choose from. What's great about this is you get out of that rut. They've got 40 recipes for you to try every single week. You'll never get bored. You'll always find something, but maybe my favorite part, I know my wife loves it, is they have a fast and fresh option. These are recipes you can have ready in 15 minutes. So not only is it faster than takeout, it's also 25% cheaper. And oh, by the way, it's better for you. They've got quality proteins, they've got fresh produce, they've got plans for every lifestyle. It's no wonder that HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. We absolutely love it, you will too. And I have to tell you, I felt intimidated when I saw some of these items. I was like, I'm not gonna be able to make this. They give you everything you need, all the ingredients, all the right amount of that ingredient. It's pre-portioned. It eliminates the guesswork and the instructions, man. There's photos. Even I could do it. You're going to love it. Go right now to hellofresh.com slash STW 50 and use the code STW 50 for 50% off plus free shipping. That's America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh. Go to hellofresh.com slash STW 50 and use the code STW 50 for 50% off plus free shipping at hellofresh.com slash STW 50.
Next month, it's fully loaded. The Rock is going to wrestle Triple H in a number one contender strap match. Lord, there's a lot of stipulations here this year. Oh, yeah, Russo. Uh, the winner is going to go to SummerSlam and get a world title match. Ultimately, it's not The Rock. Triple H beats The Rock to earn a title shot in a strap match, 19 minutes and 21 seconds. It gets three and a quarter stars. We should mention that The Rock really steals the show with an interview before the match. And this is the era where we saw in the same time frame, Triple H do the old sit down interviews with JR, I guess about a year prior. And now he is sort of trying to separate himself from some of the DX stuff and some of the silliness and become the main event and become the game. And it's interesting that we've got so many guys sort of leveling up here, specifically Hunter and rock, maybe rock beat him there the prior year, but now it feels like it's Hunter's time. Not without a little bit of help. Of course, China's there and uh, believe it or not, Billy Gunn gets involved. And uh, Rock's going to give Billy Gunn the rock bottom, but that allows Triple H to hit the pedigree. Triple H wins. And now Triple H is on to work in the main event for the world title. And the Rock's going to work with Billy Gunn. Now, Lord knows I'm not disparaging Billy Gunn. Big jacked up dude, great pedigree, great wrestler, et cetera, et cetera. But you got to wonder coming off the heels of the main event of, of WrestleMania with Steve Austin. And now I'm not in the title picture for SummerSlam. Instead, I've lost at a couple of pay-per-views in a row. And now I'm working with, admittedly, the new king of the ring, Billy Gunn. Does Rock see this as a demotion? Or instead, does he see it as a vote of confidence of, hey, the office really needs me to help get this guy over as a single? Rock hated it. I mean, there's no other way to explain it. I mean, Rock hated it. Um, Did he see it as a demotion? He saw it as not a demotion, but okay. I'm the guy that has to get this guy over. Right. And not like I'm over. Go put me on top. And instead I'm putting the role of trying to get this, this guy over. And I don't know that, and I don't know that rock really had the confidence in Billy. This was a time where we were looking to, uh, get a singles run out of Billy and see what the hell he had. You know, it was, it was away from the tag team with road dog and, uh, he's on his own and see what he can do. And as we, we've discussed previously and talked about the new age outlaws and, the ups and downs there, this just didn't work. And I don't know if it was from being a tag team guy that there, there's a different cardio level for tag team guys. And, and I say that about a guy who is one of the most uh, in shape, <laughs> amazing athletes, just natural athlete ever in the business and Billy Gunn. Um, but I don't know that, his pacing and his timing and everything was right for a single run. And that sounds weird, but it just, it, it wasn't. And it wasn't the same being a single as he was much better with a partner. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you look at, no, there's not, it's just, it's a different lot, man. Yeah. 
I mean, we could go on and on and make a big list of guys who are like that, but that's the thing. Like when you, and we've talked about this before, Billy Gunn is his size is deceptive. Like I don't think people think about him and Hulk Hogan being the same size, but they are. I think Billy might even be taller and just as jacked. like it's hard to poke holes in his presentation as a main eventer, but for whatever reason, it just wasn't clicking. And, um, well, I mean, the rock kind of buried him a little bit in promos. And I know he did that to everybody in this era, but it felt especially brutal when he did it to Billy Gunn. Like this isn't even in my notes. I just remember him having the conversation with quote unquote God and it's Billy, that whole thing. Did you, I mean, everybody's laughing during the promo, but did you think, well, he's fucking dead. No, it was, it was really okay. Here's your opportunity. Now come out of it and, and go out and, and deliver. But the audience wasn't ready for him. And I don't know that Billy was ready for, for the push at that time. Um, I mean, you couldn't really go live. I mean, again, I'm not trying to disparage Billy Gunn. I'm a fan. Nice guy, by the way, too, but I'm just saying how many people could really go in there and verbally spar back and forth with the rock. Sure. There's a handful, but that's the end. There's just a handful. So it's not like you could even say, all right, Billy, now you go out there and ether him. Yeah. I mean that, yeah, that that's again, a testament to the writing. That's a testament to the delivery and that's a testament to the talent rock had the talent to go out and do that whatever was written for him he would make his own and yeah it's it's not even fair it's kind of taking a slingshot to a gunfight so let's talk about SummerSlam 99 where the rock is going to officially bury billy gunn forever i'm sorry uh, the rock wrestles billy gunn in a kiss my ass match or as it was referred to uh, in some commercials that weren't as liberal as the USA network, a kiss my backside match. And Billy Gunn comes out with a, uh, this is directly from the observer. Billy Gunn comes out with a short, very large woman under a sheet and said when he won rock would have to kiss her ass and not his, uh, they brawl some on the outside of the ring gun hits uh, rock with the ring bell gun counters a rock bottom and uses a neck breaker. Rock winds up with a bloody nose and makes a comeback with a float over DDT. Gunn finally uses his famouser and went to rub Rock's mouth on the woman's ass as she lifted up a fairly short dress and showed these huge panties. And during the match, Lawler and Ross kept speculating what kind of underwear this large, scary woman was wearing. Rock reverses things and shoves Gunn's face in her ass and then hits the rock bottom and the people's elbow for the pin. Quote, Reports are that Rock was very upset working with Gunn midway through the match, and this contributed to a somewhat disappointing match. A fact he pretty much pretty much made well clear on television the next night, and when he tried to categorize Gunn with Gangrel and even Brooklyn Brawler as wrestlers at the level that he should never be booked with, two and three quarter stars. My God, what a moment in time! Not only are you not winning, hey, congratulations, you're the king of the ring. So glad we're getting you this big singles push. I know you're a very decorated tag team wrestler, but now you're the man, you're the king of the ring. 
and we're putting you with a top guy. Hey, look, there's the rock and you're the ass man. Well, we're going to get that over. We're going to put you in a kiss my ass match. Oh, by the way, you're losing and we're going to shove your head in this lady's ass. And then tomorrow we're going to compare you to the fucking Brooklyn brawler. Yeah. <laughs> help Congratulations. Me, help me understand how this happens. It didn't work. I mean, it just didn't work. And I think that the, the confidence in Billy's single run quickly, quickly diminished. It wasn't, um, and it wasn't just this match. It was leading up to it as well. And when you look at the two, the two talents, where are you, where are you going to invest? And you're going to go, you're going to invest in rock. And unfortunately for Billy at that point, that that's where it lay. Um, I think that that was a lot of times a shortcoming of Russo of, of let's, you know, you, if you book it, they will come. Um, it just didn't, not everybody just because you book them in that position should be in that position. And I think for Billy to succeed that maybe after King of the ring, he, probably should have worked with someone else and, and built to that, but put, being put right in with rock and being put right into that position of not just top guy, but mega top guy and not being able to run with them. It's, it's, it's a tough crowd. Does Vince have his own opinion? I mean, does Vince form the opinion all on his own? I mean, as to who's a top guy and who's not, or does he have guys that are sort of in his cabinet, if you will, and say, oh man, this guy, this, or that guy, that can he be influenced? I guess my question is clearly he saw something in Billy Gunn or we wouldn't have gotten this far when, sure when, when rock comes back through the curtain, is he in Vince's ear saying, God damn it. Don't fucking make me do this again. The guy bloodied my nose. The match fucking sucked. He sh I shouldn't be working with him. I don't know if he did or not, but I think that anybody that watched it could have seen that. Right. So, you know, Vince is always going to make the, the final decision. And yes, people are going to give their opinions on it, but a blind man could have seen it. Well, I'm not arguing that, but I guess and I'm not. Point. And I'm also not, but I'm not putting all the blame on Billy. I think that of course not. a lot of it goes to the booking and a lot of it goes to the creative from the standpoint of, could we have done this differently? And the answer is yes. And we should have taken Billy and built him and taken our time with it uh, before just saying, all right, Billy's going to be a single. He's going to be Mr. Ass. We're going to give him a push. But by God, let's put him in there with the top guy right away. And that, and now you're automatically comparing him to, you know, number 1A and 1B in the company. Think he needed he had a little bit more growing to do to be put in that position. So it's poor booking on our part. Let's uh, I guess what I'm fascinated by is, you know, oh anybody could see that watching the match. Why didn't we think that about The Rock when he had a bad match with the Undertaker? I guess that's my point. The Rock can go have a bad match with the Undertaker and it's like, oh well, those guys just don't click. But when because the Rock, the Rock and Undertaker had proven themselves previously with a lot of other people. 
but Billy Gunn had as a tag wrestler for over a decade. As a tag wrestler, not as a single. No. Not over a decade. Absolutely but a not. Long time. Okay. Absolutely not. And, and even after that, proved that, you know, maybe he's better off in a tag. Oh, man. We got to do another show on this sometime soon. By the way, the next night on, on Raw, Brock does pin Gangrel. And then during the Mankind Triple H title match, he comes out and does commentary. And he's asking, who's booking this crap regarding his recent matches? Triple H winds up hitting the rock with a chair while rock is at the commentary table. And then triple H ends up pinning mankind to win his first world title. It's a big deal for triple H. He's the world champ and the rocks on commentary. So he's at least in the game. This episode is in fact brought to you by pro wrestling crate.com. These are monthly mystery crates for diehard wrestling fans. And if you're looking for exclusive wrestling collectibles every month, sign up for them at pro wrestling crate.com. Boxes ship worldwide and include brand new merchandise from AEW wrestlers and WWE legends. Every premium box includes two shirts, one micro brawler figure, one autographed eight by 10, one lapel pin and more plans start at nine 95 and are the perfect gift for any wrestling fan. Visit pro wrestling today. And Jerry is going to wrestle Stevie Richards. Well, Steven Richards from the right to censor and Steven gets the win in five minutes and 31 seconds. And the steps were if Lawler wins cat would strip, but if Richards won cat has to join the RTC and they didn't have a little end for nudity on the parental warning. So I guess that tells you ahead of time that we're not going to see any naughty bits. Uh, in the end though, you know, the deal. Uh, Steven Richards gets the win. RTC puts cat in a burlap sack and take her away star and a half. It is sort of weird that the step is if I win, my wife gets to get naked. Yeah, but they, she wasn't portrayed as his wife. Yeah. It's just weird though. Wait, let's talk about why we're really here though. This is probably the storyline or the, uh, the pit of news that most people want to hear about. Um, Stacy, the cat Carter is suddenly fired and Jerry immediately quit in protest. Meltzer would write very sketchy details at press time. Other than Stacy Carter was released on February 27th, which was strange being that it was right in the middle of an angle they were doing with her being kidnapped. And upon hearing that news, Lawler quit the company in protest. According to the reports, Lawler was at the production meeting going over the show until 2 PM, then left. When he came back at 4 PM, Ross told him they had to release Carter. Lawler said he told Ross and McMahon that if she is let go, then he would quit. They didn't change their decision and he left. Lawler said to his webmaster that there was no incident or provocation of any kind that led up to this. And that both he and Carter have no idea why this happened. They denied there was any refusal by Carter to do something with the current angle. And there were other reports that Lawler had pressured or convinced McMahon to give Carter an angle as she had for all real purposes, been off TV for some time. And he acquiesced at first, this becomes a very intriguing story because Lawler is tied to so many facets of the business, including being a cover man, color man of every major show, raw SmackDown, pay-per-views and the XFL as well as being a key part of the developmental territory in Memphis. If this was another point in history, it would be one thing because a talent like Lawler could go to another territory while things simmered down. But he really has no alternative to make any real money in this business and then come back at some point because Taz was in New York while all this went down it forced them to do 
to have Ross do color with Cole for SmackDown. It's believed that Taz will get the color spot on all the shows, which is an enormous amount of pressure on him at this point, because he's uh, been a lot better in small portions in the pay-per-view so far. We'll talk about, you know, Jerry's side of things and his perspective, but. And then we'll tell the truth. Well, okay. We'll do that. Then we'll do that first. No, no, go ahead. I want to hear, uh, let's, let's go through his, his version of it. And I'll tell you what happened. This mother's day and father's day, look no further for the perfect gift than paintyourlife.com. It's worked for me every time. And when I say every time, I mean it. I've used paintyourlife.com to bring tears to the eyes of my mom, my dad, even my father-in-law. And right now I'm ordering one for my mother-in-law all from paintyourlife.com. My mother-in-law's life is her dog, Missy. And this year, my wife and I knew exactly what to get my mother-in-law for mother's day, a painting of Missy. It really is that simple too. All we needed was a a picture from our phone. Boom. We're up and running. You see, paintyourlife.com can really create a hand painted portrait to fit almost any budget. And it's the perfect gift for your mother, your father, or both. I've used it, as I said, on almost every person in my life. I've given these to my wife. I've given it to my cousin, my mom, my dad, my father-in-law. If I'm looking to give a truly meaningful, personable gift, I know the paintyourlife.com has my back and they're going to make it easy. You can go ahead and start the entire process in less than five minutes. And what's really cool about paintyourlife.com is they can even combine photos. Maybe you want to put two people who never met in one of your favorite vacation spots. You can do that. Just upload the photos. Bam. You're good to go. Maybe grandpa never got to meet his grandson with paintyourlife.com. That can become a reality. You can put people and places together. Even if they've never been there, you pick the artist, you pick the medium. Do you want oil, acrylic, watercolor, charcoal? You can even go ahead and pick out an awesome frame. The whole process to get started, as I said, takes less than five minutes and you can actually get your painting in as little as two weeks, but you work hand in hand with the artist to get every detail. Perfect. If you're looking to get those waterworks going to have your mom or your dad tear that paper and just almost be overcome with emotion, that's what I got. And I've never gotten that reaction to a gift card. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. There's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now, as a limited time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. Now, to get this special offer, just text the word WRESTLE to 87204. That's WRESTLE to 87204. Text WRESTLE to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Jerry wrote, JR said, telling me this is one of the hardest things he's ever had to do. And he said, he didn't know how to tell Stacy. And that's when JR asked me if I could tell her. And I thought this is one hell of a note. They're firing my wife and they want me to tell her she's fired. So that's when I told JR. Yeah, I'll tell her. I'll tell her we're on our way back to Memphis because if she's fired, I'm leaving too. 
When I knocked on the door to the ladies locker room, I don't even remember which Steve answered, but I asked for Stacy. And in a moment, she was peeking around the corner, just half dressed. As far as she knew, she was on in a couple hours away from one of her biggest roles to date on SmackDown. She was getting ready early. I think she could tell on my face that something was wrong. I just said, baby, get dressed to get your things. We're leaving. She looked at me like I was kidding and said, why what's wrong. I believe she thought I had some sort of death in the family or there was some kind of emergency or something. Tell me what's wrong. Why are we leaving? I just said, Jr. told me that Vince is giving you your release. So I told him I'm leaving too. So get your things and let's go. And she stunned and looked at me and said, why? When she gathered her things together, we took them out along with my bag, threw them in the rental car. We got in the car and I started it off. And then I turned the engine off and I said, let's go talk to Vince. We walked back into the arena and up to Vince's office. It was a very small office that day. And at each show, it's a different room chosen to be Vince's office. And usually they're pretty nice and spacious, but this one was not much bigger than a broom closet. When I looked in, Vince was sitting there eating that protein bar, talking on the phone. And I said, Vince, can we talk to you for a second? He motioned for us to come in and sit down while he finished his phone call. The room was so small that when I sat down, my knee was actually touching Vince's. I was pretty sure that whoever he was talking to on the phone was informing him that I was leaving along with Stacy. When he got off the phone, Stacy asked Vince what she had done so bad for being fired for it. And that's when the mystery began. JR said, or Vince said he didn't really know what she had done. It was a talent relations issue. Well, JR is the head of talent relations and he had just sworn to me. He had no idea for the reason for Stacy's firing. So I said to Vince, Jim Ross said someone was unhappy with her attitude. If that's the case, shouldn't someone have come to us and said, Stacy, there's a problem. We need to talk to you and get straightened out. Vince said, yes, someone should have come to Stacy and talked to her about that. And I pointed out that no one did. No one said anything to either of us, about any kind of problem. Well, they should have Vince said, and that's when I knew Stacy's attitude wasn't the real reason she was being fired. Stacy and China had been really close friends up until China got featured in Playboy magazine. And then for one reason or another, they drifted apart. And I wondered if China had been upset with the sudden push that cat was getting with the right to censor angle. We both thought that could have been the reason Stacy was fired. One of the people from the office who was instrumental in getting China hooked up with Playboy had asked Stacy if she would be interested in posing for the magazine. When Stacy said she would, the person set up a meeting with Hugh Hefner. Stacy and I went to the Playboy Mansion and met Hef. We spent a few minutes with him, and he said to Stacy, We have a great relationship with the WWE, and as far as I'm concerned, you'd be perfect to be the next Eva in our magazine. Stacy was really excited, but somehow word got back to the company that Stacy and I had gone out there on our own and met with Hefner behind their back. Like I know Hugh Hefner, I could just call him up and say, Hef, this is King. I want you to put Stacy in Playboy. We never really got the misunderstanding straightened out. And Stacy and I thought that may have been the reason she was fired. Another item going around was that she was fired because there was a photograph of her kissing China, like some sort of lesbian pictures or something. The truth is there was a picture on the internet of Stacy and China with their faces close together and their lips puckered. The picture was taken by me and had actually only been on my website for more than a year. And they were mugging for the camera, not kissing. I really had no idea what had gone wrong. I wrote a heartfelt letter to Vince and said, I wish the whole thing hadn't happened, but at no point did I beg for my job back. Anyway, I didn't hear a word back from Vince for a long time. I didn't hear anything from anyone. The communication was through lawyers and it was an ugly situation. All right. Now you were there. What really happened? Tucson, Arizona. We had gotten out of the meeting and. It came up 
with, uh, Stacy had gone to some of the writers and was complaining and convetching about whatever they had to do that night. And it was a constant battle that, you know, everything was a debate and they came in and said, you know, we, we just want to end it because it's, it's difficult. And they were like done at that point. Uh, Jim was in talent relations. I think I, I think I was still in talent relations at that point too. So he says, Hey, I need you to come with me. And Jim told me, uh, what was going on. I says, we, we got to let Stacy go. And I don't, I don't think it's going to be good because I don't know how King's going to react. And out of respect to King, he says, I want to do it. And I want to do it face to face. I need a witness. Um, I hope he doesn't quit. So we went upstairs to JR's office and we, we sat in the little dressing room there and JR said, King got some bad news. And he says, we are not going to be continuing on with Stacy and, and we got to let her go. And I'm coming to you first out of respect. We're friends. And this is a difficult situation. You know, uh, I don't want to do this. It's, it's tough, but in business, sometimes you got to make tough decisions. And, and as a friend, I'm letting you know if, if how you would like to handle it. And Jerry said, you know, I've got a, a contract sitting on my desk at home for $300,000 or half a million dollars, whatever it was from WCW that I could start tomorrow night if I wanted to. I says, well, I don't know if you can or not, uh, based on your contract here, but I, I wish that you wouldn't do this. He goes, I, I don't know what to say. I understand that's your wife. And, and Gerald was very, you know, empathetic and trying to, it's an awkward situation. It's a shitty situation, no matter how you look at it. So, uh, Jerry says, well, if she goes, I go. And Jr. said something about, I, you know, I, I feel like Martin and Lewis and name somebody else that I don't want to break up the team. I don't want to break you and I up. And, you know, Jerry again reiterated he could, he could start WCW tomorrow. He's got an offer from them, and he doesn't need this place, and it's for more money. And Jim tried to tried to talk him down, and he says, well, if that's it, then we're out of here. And Jerry got up and left. So, you know, still no one had told Stacy yet. So I guess that's when Jerry went and, and told Stacy, and then they went to Vince's office, and tried to talk to Vince and Vince was in the middle of whatever he was doing. I have no idea what transpired at that, uh, meeting. I wasn't in there for that one. From there, Jerry went out to talk to Kevin Dunn in the truck and Kevin, I, I don't, I think Kevin knew what was going to happen, but it was, he didn't know Jerry had quit and was kind of confused. And so it all happened really fast. But it was a shitty situation that it was really difficult for Jr. And I think with me sitting there, I, I think Jerry felt, well, I was somehow responsible for it, which I had been told moments before that by Jr. So I had no idea until we got in there. Now, I do know that 
you know, there was frustration with Stacy for some time with the creative team and that they felt that, you know, she, a lot of pushback on things. And, um, I think the impression was that she had gotten a little big for her britches and gotten the big head. But again, that, that was outside and after the fact and so on and so forth. But yeah, it was the first thing he said was, yeah, I can go to WCW tomorrow. I've got a big contract. And Jr. was like, I really hope that's not what you do. I don't want you to quit. Let's stay and work this thing out. You know, time will, time heals everything and just chill. And, and, uh, he was gone state and clear, he left state clearly for the record again. Why was Stacy fired? I think more, it was just kind of pushback on everything. It was a, an accumulation of everything they brought to her creatively that it was always an argument. And whatever had happened that day, and I still was never really clear on it, but whatever had happened that day, it was like, then, you know what, if she doesn't want to do it, then move on. We got to go. Don't have time for this. And Jr. had come and gotten me and said, Hey, I need you to witness this. And he buzzed me right before we went in the room and got King. So that was it. It was, it was more of a, it, it was an attitude deal. What were the rumors and innuendo surrounding her? You know, wrestling breeds a lot of paranoia and also breeds a lot of rumors and, uh, shit talk. Everybody buries everybody. Lots of negativity. It's not popular. It's not fun, but it is the reality that it exists sometimes. And, you know, this was a, an, an interesting time for the business where it's not quite as PC as it is now. It's a little more wild west. Were there rumors or whispers about the cat one way or another? Uh, there may have been, but I, again, you, I hate to repeat rumors and innuendo because that's all it is, is rumors and innuendo. Unless you witness something yourself, I, I, that's not fair. That's not fair to anybody that can't defend themselves. I'm, I'm not so, asking you to repeat it. I just wanted to ask if you heard it. You hear shit all the time, but okay. again, you hear shit about, you know, hear shit about you and me all the time. So, oh no, I, I'm not arguing that at it, all. It's the, but from the, the business standpoint of it, that had nothing to do with it. It was more of an issue of just the, whatever the antagonistic back and forth with creative at the time. And I can't even tell you going back at that time. I don't even remember who the hell was even on creative at the time. So, you know, it was, that's it. I mean, it's, it's, that comes down to, to that simple and it's tough because her husband works there and he's an integral part of the show. Plus he's, you know, he's a friend. <laughs> so he's somebody that, that, that's been a part of it the whole time. So it, it sucks. It, it's a very difficult situation to be in. Lawler would write in his book that, you know, people would say that he overreacted to the firing of Stacy, but. He said he can't believe anybody would think that a job was more important to a husband than his wife. And he didn't regret it. And his website was getting 60,000 hits a day because people were so fascinated with the story. And at the end of it at five 30, around five 30 on February 27th, 2001, uh, just less than a month before WCW goes under at that Tuesday in Tucson. Vince stands up with a protein bar in his left hand, extends his right hand and says, well, King, I want to thank you for everything you've done for us. You've gone above and beyond the call of duty and really helped us tremendously. Goodbye.
And with that, his nine year rod with the world wrestling federation came to an end and he wrote in his book, he thought it was some sort of joke or prank or rib, but he didn't detect any humor in Vince's eyes or compassion. Quote, all I saw was the straight ahead corporate stare of a company head who just made another business decision. One of hundreds of decisions Vince is called upon to make every day as the owner. And this decision hit him like a ton of bricks. It meant that they didn't want to be associated with him or his wife anymore. Their services were no longer needed. And he says he guesses he wasn't mad at Vince. He didn't want to punch him or anything. He was just hurt and disappointed. And just a week earlier, Vince had walked to him and said, King, I know you're going to love the segment I'm doing on the show with Trish Stratus tonight because you and I are cut from the same cloth. And he remembered feeling proud when Vince said that, that they thought a lot, they had a lot in common and he thought they did too. And he even wrote in the book that he had the honor of making Vince McMahon's first blade, the specially adapted razor blade that Vince used to cut his forehead and bleed on TV for the first time. But now all of a sudden in the blink of an eye, it's like they had nothing in common again. It's uh, it's a weird story, man. And I think a lot of people probably wonder why Vince didn't make a different decision in that moment. Well, Did you have a conversation with him about it? No, but the thing is, is you're doing television, you're working, you're, you own a business. Guy quits. Okay. We, we pleaded with him not to. And tried to make it work. Now, yes, we were letting his wife go. And I understand from a husband-wife thing, I, I understand that too. From Vince's point of view, it's a business. And I've, I've got television to produce now. I'm very sorry that you've made this decision to quit. That's a bad one to make. Because it's hard to come back from that. That's one thing to say it to us, and we're trying to talk you out of it. But when you go to him with it, it's kind of over at that point. If you had gone and said, you know what? Um, I don't understand what's going on here. I'm not sure I can work tonight. I'd like to, I'd like to take the night off and give this some thought. That's different than saying I'm out. I quit emotions. I, I get both sides of it. Vince's man. He's business <laughs> next moving on. And. Somebody, somebody comes in to your office and say, Conrad, I quit. I really wish you wouldn't do that. I'd hope you'd reconsider. Nope. I quit. I'm out of here. I've got a, I've got a better offer down the street at XYZ mortgage. See you later. Are you going to, are you going to get up and shake their hand and say bye? Or are you going to get down on your hands and knees when you've got a closing in 30 minutes? No, no. Listen, you got it right. I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying. It does feel like they could have had a conversation about a cat and say, you know what? Let's just suspend her, send her home for two weeks. We'll figure it out and get your ass out there and call the show. But I guess when you start waving your dick around saying, I'm going to WCW now, it feels like, well, you've already thought about this. You've got a deal. You didn't tell us about it. Now you're quitting. Okay. Good luck to you. Yeah. I mean, there's a, another little thing in here where. JR and Lawler are having a conversation before he goes to Vince and he says, you know, if the shoe was on the other foot and you work for a company that fired Jan 
for no reason. Would you stay? And JR responded, probably not. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to unleash the beast within you. This summer, Manscaped is here to help you level up your beach game with their brand new Beard Hedger Pro Kit. They're going past waist deep in the grooming game and diving headfirst into your facial hair fantasies. The Beard Hedger is a game changer, allowing you to shape your beard like a true beach babe. So this summer, let the beach balls bounce and turn heads all over the place. Visit manscaped.com and use the code STW for 20% off and free shipping. It's time to tame your mane. So say goodbye to all your stubble trouble with Manscaped's Beard Hedger Pro Kit. It all starts with the Beard Hedger. First off, it's a cordless trimmer that has a rotary wheel and gives you 20 hair cutting lengths with just one guard. Say goodbye to all those messy junk drawers. You don't need all those things anymore. 20 lengths with one guard. That's right. And it's waterproof too. So you can use it in the shower. So you don't have to clog up the sink. And how about the titanium coated T-blade? It's tough on hair, but smooth on your face, leading to single stroke efficiency. It's going to bring satisfaction one stroke at a time. The pro kit doesn't end there though. How about the beard shampoo and conditioner? Now, remember your facial hair is different than your head hair. You see, it's more coarse and easier to damage. So you need something that was specially created to help you moisturize your beard. And at the same time, reduce all of those ingrown hairs and replace those natural oils. How about the beard oil? As a matter of fact, that's also offered by Manscaped here. You'll actually get to relieve both the dryness on the beard and the skin beneath it, but it also adds a little shimmer and shine. And let's top it off with the beard balm. That's going to help you shape and style and moisturize. You can get a more sculpted look with your beard. They even throw you in three free bonus gifts here. These are absolutely free, a beard brush, a comb, and the scissors. If you've never used a beard brush, you don't know what you're missing. And for grooming, man, it doesn't get better than the comb. And sometimes you just need a little pair of beard scissors. I didn't think so till I had them. Now I love them. Get yours with 20% off and free shipping when you use the code STW at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Just use the code STW. Manscaped Beard Hedger, one stroke, one guard, 20 links. He said he treated people differently based on their position on the card. Uh, for example, he wouldn't give uh, a D'Lo Brown the time of the day, but he would have Stone Cold Steve Austin over to his house for barbecues. I think that's wrong. Um, he says that there was a saying that you have to treat stars like stars, but Russo believes that you treat people like people. Um, and Russo says that doing that makes sense. Um, today's jobbers might be tomorrow's stars and many of the talents despise Jr. for showing favoritism. They might not have told him that to his face because they were afraid of losing their jobs, but they told me that on many, many occasions. Is this a fair criticism of JR at the time? No, it's, it's worth mentioning. We're not piling on JR here. We're all going through this process together. We're all learning. He's writing about stuff that happened 15 or 20 years ago. Um, but once upon a time, did JR make the mistake of treating people poorly based on their position in the company? I never encountered that. And I think that JR was in that position because he did treat everybody fairly. And Sure. Did he have friends and did he have stone cold over to his house? Yes, he did. And were they friends? Yes, they were. But I've always felt that Jr. treated everybody fairly and he was not one of those guys that didn't have the time of day for a D low Brown. And I felt that Jr. always treated all the talent fairly. He was as he was looking for that next star all the time. 
Uh, Russo would really lay it in here. You know what Vince would call JR behind the scenes? Deputy dog. Yes, he wore that ridiculous cowboy hat 24-7. And even if Vince was kidding, you knew there was something to it. Now, if you're a young talent with all the promise in the world, are you going to sign with a sharp, attractive, energetic go-getter like Eric Bischoff? Are you going to go sign with a guy who's only worried about being on television, talking about a barbecue sauce that bears his name, and moves at a snail's pace of a laid-back canine cartoon character? How do you think GR did as head of talent relations, Bruce? Because Russo is blistering him here. I thought that JR was the best at talent relations that the company ever had and did it for the longest amount of time. And I thought he did a hell of a job doing it, quite frankly. Um, certainly did a hell of a lot better job than I did and that I ever could do. But I thought that JR was excellent at his job and treated everybody fairly. And as far as, you know, JR's playing a character on television. The guy behind the scenes was a great businessman and fair. Russo thought that JR was dropping the ball on signing talent. He says when he was writing TV, it felt like he was doing the same thing over and over again because he didn't have enough names. Meanwhile, Bischoff was signing everybody. But when Bischoff signed Ultimate Warrior, that was the last straw to Russo. What is JR doing? I would often wonder. I need players. Um, so he said, screw it. If JR wasn't going to do his job, then I'm going to do it for him. With Vince's permission, I actually started to personally recruit talent. JR couldn't have been happy about this, but then again, I didn't really care. All I was worried about was the company. So I was instrumental in bringing back Al Snow, introducing the Dudleys, Taz, Stevie Richards, Chris Jericho, and more to the Federation before my departure. For a guy who says he didn't use ECW for inspiration or ideas, did I name a guy who wasn't in ECW? Uh, no, sir, you didn't. Uh, and also, too, from you know, to kind of jump on Russo here a little bit, but I think it's a fair criticism. Doesn't it show a clear lack of understanding to list the Ultimate Warrior not coming to the WWF in 1998 as a reason to indict JR? I mean, this thing had went off the rails two years prior and another time before that. So it's already at this point been fool me once, fool me twice, fool me three times. We're signing up for a fourth time now? My goodness. Well, but the other the other part about it is is it's very easy to armchair quarterback and say, oh, you know, I want this talent, I want that talent, without actually having to deal with budgets, and then having to deal with that talent uh, and get a contract and get everything else done. So again, it's easy to say, yeah, uh, uh, give me this guy. Okay, maybe that guy doesn't want to come. Maybe that guy wants more money. Maybe they want other accommodations. Uh, but it's easy to say, I want, I want, I want, I want, and not have to be the one to actually make it come to fruition. He wasn't done with JR yet. I don't know about you, but I really don't like to talk. I like to get in and get out, say what I have to say, and then leave. That's another thing that used to drive me nuts about JR. He talked and 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 talked some more. And again, in my opinion, when somebody may not be qualified to do what they do, they will talk your freaking ear off in an effort to try and convince you that they actually know what they're doing. After a while, I just flat out refused to have any meetings with Jim. There just weren't enough hours in the day. Uh, let me just ask you here, Bruce, if you were starting a wrestling company tomorrow and one person is in charge of hiring talent for your company, would you hire Vince Russo or Jim Ross? Jim Ross. Uh, Russo would say that JR's ego took over like a cancer. Uh, he said that after a Bell's palsy bout, uh, Jim wanted to come back and do some commentary on TV, but McMahon, Dunn and Russo knew that he wasn't ready. Russo said he told JR, Jim, the fans don't want to see you this way. This isn't the JR they know. 
I told him to give it a little more time and there was no doubt he was going to be back on air throughout the entire plea. My voice was cracking like a woman's because I had to fight back the tears just to get the damn words out. After I was done pouring my guts onto the floor, Jim thanked me. And later that night, I found out following our conversation, Jim went right to Kevin and Vince and still lobbied to go on the air the next day. That my friend is what ego is all about. Here's a wrestling legend whose face is, let's say it disfigured. And he still wants to go out in front of his fans. I would often think about another incident from JR's time away from TV. We were at the sky dome in Toronto in front of a pretty big crowd. JR took Vince to the side and asked if he could go out and just wave to his fans before the show. I don't care how you look at it. That's scary. If it's that important for someone to be in the limelight, I don't know what else to say. Why would Russo include this story in his book? If not to attempt to humiliate JR Bruce, you know, I can't think of any other reason and that's just sad, but wait, there's more. Ed and I traveled everywhere with Vince, Shane and Stephanie. And during every trip, he would entertain the troops, even though Ed Ferrara did many voices and characters. His staple was Jr. Yes, it was cruel, but Ed's imitation of Jr. during his Bell's palsy era was beyond words. I'm going to hell for saying this, but as a good writer, I need to properly set the scene. When Jr. was stricken a second time with the disease, every time he spoke, his tongue would pop out of his mouth and roll around like a lost slug looking for a cool rock to crawl under. Ed had this down to a science. Now get over it. We weren't being deliberately cruel. We were just spending way too much time on the road. Yeah, we may all meet again one day at Satan's gate, but at the time it was freaking hysterical. That's how Ed Ferrara playing WCW's Oklahoma came about. We did it as a rib on JR because we knew Vince would be dying on the inside saying, I can't believe those guys are doing that. Of course, the goody goodies at WCW made us kill the character because it may have insulted someone with Bell's palsy watching. Man, I came into this kind of open-minded, but it's kind of hard to defend Russo here. Is it not? Well, it's insulting to, to Jr. who gave his whole life to, and, and Russo's not the only one that was guilty of, of making fun of him. And, you know, Vince McMahon did and everybody did and, and just jumped on the bandwagon because it was chic to make fun of Jr. Um, but you can't go back and discount that the guy's sitting there and going through a horrible time in his life. And it sucked for Jr. But yeah, that's, that's sad as well. Uh, as to why Vince uh, had Jim Ross as the head of talent relations so long, Russo wrote that you, Bruce Pritchard, told him that Ross demanded a 10-year no-cut contract. And he wrote, again, this is according to Pritchard, so you not only have to take it with a grain of salt, but a whole sack of Mortons. Salt aside, was this true? No. He didn't have a a 10-year no-cut contract. StarCast returns to the Chicago area this Labor Day weekend. Tickets for StarCast 6 are now on sale at StarCast.com and include AEW all-out ticket bundle options. Join us at the Hyatt Regency Schaumburg starting Friday night, September 1st, for unique fan experiences with wrestling legends from yesterday and superstars from today. Follow StarCast events on Twitter for the latest updates about all things StarCast. StarCast 6 is brought to you in part by ProWrestlingCrate.com, monthly mystery crates for diehard wrestling fans. Plans start at $9.95 and are the perfect gift for any wrestling fan. Visit ProWrestlingCrate.com today.
edges, just one day rain. Uh, Deborah, of course, is out in a bikini and Meltzer writes, you're not going to find many women pushing 40 who look like that or pushing 25 for that matter. Eventually Deborah distracts edge to take off by taking off her jacket and Jarrett knocks edge into Deborah who falls on the apron while all this is going on. Gangrel snaps Edge's neck on the top rope, and Jarrett uh, pins him using the reverse Russian leg sweep. After the match, uh, Austin hits the ring and gives Jarrett a stunner. What do you remember about this match? I remember Austin, the, the, the most memorable thing, the finish. And Austin coming out and stunning Jeff and kind of being out because it was a, you know, a lot of talk from Jeff's original interview back and the blasphemous and would Steve ever work with him or not. And Steve did it. He came out and did this. So that's all you remember. And that's all you were meant to remember. And he, and he did the little mocking of the strut, which is pretty famous. Yes. And it's funny. I, you know, I just watched this the other day and that was, you know, is about, about as awkward as you can get with Steve doing, <laughs> doing the strut and everything it was hilarious. Uh, July 26th on raw Jeff would pull uh, actor Ben Stiller out of the crowd and attack him. Uh, this is to cross promote a movie. I'm sure. But how was Ben to deal with? Uh, absolutely great. Ben, Ben and, uh, drew Carey were two guys that I remember showing up, didn't have a big entourage with them and sat out with the boys and watched the monitor in the back where everybody kind of gathered around uh, didn't have, wasn't a big star and was willing to do any and everything that we asked him to do. Great guy. On, uh, August 2nd, European champ D'Lo Brown would get the victory over Jeff to win the intercontinental title on raw. Why in the world was D'Lo a double champion here? This seems out of place, Bruce. What say you? D'Lo was getting over, man. He had the head Bob and D'Lo was getting over. So man, let's try something. Let's go with him. Why not? Throw a little more steam on the, in the engine. Uh, let's talk about, um, August 15th on heat meat defeated Jeff Jarrett. What's your favorite meat match? Jesus. I'd like to forget every meat match I ever saw. Uh, meats now. The, mo- the, mo- yeah, the, the best gimmick for Sean Stasiak would have been Mr. Paranoid. Uh, meats now a chiropractor. So would that make him Dr. Meat? Dr. Paranoid. Now, I assume you're talking about paranoid because he taped all his conversations. Um, just really paranoid. Yeah, give me an we'll example. No, no, no. You brought the shit up and you said it twice, and I let it go the first time. When he, you circled- he just believed that everything was a conspiracy against me. Believe everybody was talking about him. Believed everyone was conspiring against him to hold him down, and and was just out of his friggin' mind. August 16th, the Observer reports that Steve Austin turned down working with both Jeff Jarrett and Billy Gunn, claiming that neither were over enough to work with him. Um, here's what Kevin Kelly said once upon a time. I was there when Jeff Jarrett returned and came out and gave his famous little shoot promo thing in the ring where he said he felt Austin 316 was blasphemous, which is what Jeff's true opinion was. But Jeff was instructed by Vince Russo to speak his piece. When Jeff came through the curtain, Austin was pretty much right there. And he said, you're talking about my merchandise. You're talking about my money and I don't like it. What Jeff probably should have done was gone to Steve and said, Hey, listen, this is what they want me to do. And what do you think about it? 
Steve Austin harbored a lot of bad feelings toward Jeff Jarrett because of the fact that Steve was starved when he was down in Memphis. And while Jeff was catered to as the Booker's son, Jeff had this huge mansion or Jerry had this huge mansion in Hendersonville and both of them lived the good life while Steve was getting around 40 bucks a night. Austin has defended his stance. Here's what he says. He wasn't physical enough. He didn't hit the ropes hard enough. And it wasn't a case of me being able to bring him up more of a case of him bringing me down because of how hot I was. I'm not out there UFC shoot fighting, but Jesus Christ, lay some stuff in on me, bust my mouth, whatever. That's the way I did it when I was feeding comebacks on DX and all those guys. I mean, those guys walking backstage would be with busted lips and noses, loose teeth. I was throwing sledgehammers in there and people were going crazy. That's just the way it was. He can't hit the ropes hard enough to bust an egg. I had a violent physical work style. I mean, Jesus, you want to work with me, bring it. And then we get to the gun arena and they say, okay, we want you to work a match with Jeff Jarrett. And I said, what you want me to work with who? And they said, Jeff Jarrett. I said, I think Vince Russo was telling me this. I said, all right, come here. So we walk into McMahon's room and it might've been me, Vince, Jim Ross, and about five other people. And I said, fuck this M S F. These are the best damn cussing jobs. I said, I told you sons of bitches. I never wanted to work with the guy. And now you're going to make me come in here and play the bad guy. Meanwhile, Jeff Jarrett said this, Steve Austin has drawn a ton of money and throws a very phony punch. This business is all about perception. So I don't really understand that one still to this day. There's a lot of things that you can pinpoint or complain about in Jeff Jarrett, but his in ring work. I've never heard that. This statement about me hitting the ropes confuses me more than him not wanting to work with me. What say you Bruce? This whole, he doesn't hit the ropes hard enough. Sounds like the fucking dumbest thing I've ever heard, but I can't tweet that to Austin because he blocked me. Well, that's Steve's opinion. And that's, that's how Steve felt. And Steve was the main man. So if Steve doesn't want to work with you, he ain't going to work with you. And it's, it just boils down to that. He can say whatever he wants. Um, if that's how he felt, that's what he wants to say. (laughs) That's his prerogative. And that's his opinion. Do I think, I think that Jeff was a damn good worker. I think Steve was a damn good worker. I agree with Steve as far as throwing sledgehammers. Steve threw his shit in. Um, he didn't want to work with Jeff, and that was the bottom line because Stone Cold said so. He wasn't happy about it, wasn't going to do it, and there was no more negotiation beyond that. And Russo would do things a lot of times where he would just write things in thinking that people were going to do it. Steve was one guy that would put his foot down and say no. In mid-August, Jeff's putting over D'Lo on the house shows, and then we get to SummerSlam. August 22nd, 1999 in Minneapolis, a huge business again, and Jarrett wins both the Intercontinental and the European from D'Lo in about seven and a half minutes. They're teasing a breakup here big time with Double J and Deborah, including Jarrett ordering Deborah to leave, but then, of course, Deborah comes back out with D'Lo. Uh, eventually, of course, Mark Henry's involved. They do the big swerve, and uh, Jarrett gets the pin. So Jarrett, Deborah, and Henry all leave together two and a quarter stars. So at this point, Jeff becomes the first wrestler in WWF history to win the intercontinental title six times. What'd you think of the match and the decision to take the belts off D'Lo here? Well, I th- actually, I do remember this. I thought it was good and shout out to, to Mark Henry, who gave me a call today on my way back from Austin. But, uh, I thought it worked. It told, it told a nice story and was able to kind of 
give new life, a little bit more new life to Jeff. So, again, when you have something in the hodgepodge of all the other, you know, stuff going on at times and you can settle down a little bit, I thought this kind of worked. All right, let's get to it. Um, The next night, as crazy as this sounds, uh, Jeff just gives the European title to Mark Henry. So there's that. Uh, Deborah also gets an assistant in Miss Kitty, Stacy Carter, who is of course the real life wife of Jerry Lawler becomes Deborah's assistant. Why? Again, we started talking about this show with lots of Tennessee stuff. Why is, is Stacy in this spot here? Stacy was looking to work. Stacy was a good looking girl and more TNA. Not TNA, but tits and ass. Jeff starts to attack women at this point, which sort of begins his feud with China. Where did this idea come from? How comfortable was Jeff in doing it? Obviously, it's a different time. Um, but, I mean, he gets on a roll here with it. On Raw, he defeats Jacqueline on September 6th. On September 9th, he pulls the fabulous Moolah in the ring and smashes her with a guitar. Then he puts Mae Young in the figure four while Deborah and Miss Kitty are begging him to stop. Um, whose idea was it? Uh, I mean, this feels sort of Andy Kaufman, like, which is a bro. Yeah. Help me understand. Yeah. Bro. Andy Kaufman. Yeah. Very Andy Kaufman. Like, and I think this was a collaboration of both Russo and, uh, Jeff together just to try and, make Jeff a modern day, Andy Kaufman and Jeff coming from Memphis and seeing what that did for business there. But the thing was, is was a celebrity, but, um, I think it was more a collaboration of the two and trying to come up with something new and different. So September 13th, they have a raw where, uh, Luna with is in a match with Jeff chair and ivory smashes a guitar over Luna's head. So, Luna gets the win by DQ and then Jeff puts Lillian Garcia in the figure four when she announces that Luna was the winner. Uh, a few days later on SmackDown, Jeff would attack Hollywood actress, Cindy Margolis and put her in the figure four. And then he would high five women's champion ivory and then put her in the figure four too. <laughs> I don't know why this tickles me, but it does later, later on Jarrett would wrestle test uh, and try to put Stephanie McMahon in the figure four. <laughs> September 20th, uh, on raw, Jeff Jarrett would attack the makeup lady backstage. <laughs> put her in. The- Why does this tickle me so much? Whose idea is it for him to just Cindy Margolis, Mula, May Young, the makeup lady, Lillian Garcia, this is so as, silly. As much as I hate it, you got to admit it was entertaining shit. Oh, it's so funny. I mean, yeah, you know, the makeup and all that stuff. Yeah, it got to be how how ridiculous could we make it? Um, Tess and Stephanie have a tag match against Jeff and Deborah, and Deborah wouldn't tag in, which leads to Stephanie pinning Jeff Jarrett. So there you go. The Intercontinental Champion is losing to the boss's daughter. So what do you do? You, you put the figure four on your tag team partner, September, September 23rd, Jeff attacked the female stage manager and put her in the figure four. 
later in the show, all the women that Jarrett has attacked show up with Chana and they all attack him. And this takes us to the unforgiven pay-per-view. It's September 26, 1999. It's from Charlotte. It's not a sellout, but it's drawing huge business over half a million dollars at the gate, 93,000 in merch sales. Um, interesting match here. Jarrett beats China by DQ in 11 and a half minutes to retain the intercontinental title. Harvey Whippleman is the referee and Jarrett dumped Deborah and told her not to come out, which basically teased the finish. Of course, um, China uses a power bomb on him at some point, tries a hurricane Rana, but Jarrett blocks it. Lots of stuff going on here. Meltzer would say Jarrett's overselling here. looks silly. China hit Jarrett with a chair and bulldogged him on the Spanish announcer's table, but it didn't break. China tried a pedigree, but Jarrett blocked it and catapulted her into the ref. Miss Kitty went to give Jarrett the guitar, but Moolah and Young hopped the rail and hit the ring and began pounding on Jarrett. This was still pretty campy, so it was entertaining, although the joke got old by the end of the night. Um, the silliness continues, and Meltzer would call it reasonably entertaining, two and a half stars. Any memories of this? Oh, again, it was entertaining. Gaga, ha ha. And, and that's all it was. It, it was a moment. It was a moment in the show where you had levity and you had your Gaga. After the match here, Pritchard comes out and tells Whippleman about the finish and they show it on the video wall. So Whippleman reverses the decision. Um, and then China beats Pritchard up after the match, including delivering a low blow and a pedigree. Uh, what'd you think? Again, is levity. Uh, the, I, I think that the, the best point of the whole thing was going back to the video wall. Yeah. What I, I, I used to love is when guys would, you'd have a run in. And they need to be looking at the ramp or looking at the video wall, and you see the guy coming down, which is supposed to be surprised. Yeah. Or when the ref, they would turn the referee to the video wall side, so he could and see they him. would do something behind his back on the other side. I'm like, just look up. Yeah. Um. Crazy. Um, this is China's, logic to an illogical situation. This is China's second pay per view match where she's wrestled in 1999. She wrestled Road Dog at King of the Ring a few months prior to this. And you jokingly mentioned before that China felt like she should be wrestling for the world title. How did joking? How did the idea come about for her to be wrestling as uh, wrestling men? And then what'd you think of her performance? I, I, I thought her performance was fine. I thought her performance was good, but again, it was female versus a male. And I didn't feel that I didn't like it. I mean, again, I just, I didn't feel that especially at the time that there was a place for it. Um, Vince Russo and Vince McMahon obviously felt otherwise and, and they did it and it became levity and it became entertainment for what it was. Um, why was Tom Pritchard tagged here for this spot? Is this because he knew it wouldn't hurt him and he knew how to handle it? I mean, what what's the, yeah, point? he didn't care. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's entertainment. Um, October 2nd at rebellion, uh, once again, the UK pay-per-view Jeff Jarrett defeats D'Lo Brown to retain the title. Uh, China would defeat Jeff Jarrett by disqualification. Uh, we head towards October 4th. This is raw. Now we've got Moolin, May Young defeating Ivory and Miss Kitty 
and Miss Kitty is actually forced to take Jeff Jarrett's place. And after Miss Kitty gets pinned, Jeff attacks her, <laughs> puts her in the figure four. Uh, October 7th, <laughs> SmackDown, Ivory defeats Miss Kitty in a mud wrestling match that was set up by Jeff. And then Jeff pushed uh, Moolah and Mae Young into the mud. Uh, China appeared and then kicks Jarrett into the mud too. When you guys did these silly mud matches, uh, was anybody into this and who dreaded it the most? Oh boy. Um, probably the prop guy dreaded it the most because see, you have to use a certain kind of mud. Can't just use any kind of mud. You have to, you have to use this organic mud working mud, working mud. Yeah. Um, God, I just hated that cliche, the mud matches and the oil matches and all that crap. But that's me. October 11th, Jeff would attack China, put her in a laundry bin, and push it off a ledge with her inside. Um, <laughs> some of this shit's just so silly. Here we go. No Mercy pay-per-view. happened. I didn't book that shit. October 17th, 1999. We're in Cleveland. Ohio and the rumor in innuendo is that Jeff's contract expired one day before new mercy. And he was unhappy with his role in the WWF and he didn't resign. So the day of no mercy, he literally holds up Vince for what's been called a large sum of money to appear on the show. Not all that different from what the ultimate warrior allegedly did at SummerSlam 91. Uh, you were here. What really happened? Unfortunately, over the years, Jim Ross has been kind of finger pointed out here and singled out as being, this is his fault. Did Jr. miss it? Did Jr. have a verbal from the guy? How did this come to be where he's the champ figured into a major pay-per-view and now he has all the leverage? Well, Jr. didn't miss it. No. I mean, we, we all knew, and there were some of us that were louder than others saying, Hey, why are we continuing to, to go on when we don't have a contract extension or, or a contract or something in place. Um, you know, Jr. took someone for their word and he, he trusted Jerry Jarrett and that's, I guess he learned his lesson, but the, I think in the big picture, the people to blame were, were Vince and Russo for insisting that it go on and for, for everybody taking, uh, yeah. And, and again, I go back to, to Jerry a lot on this because Jerry's the one that was negotiating a lot of it. And he's the one that didn't keep his word and wasn't truthful. So Jr. was doing his job. Jr. was doing what he was told. He did everything in his power to get it done. And he's the fall guy that that's the position. That's the heat position. If shit goes good, Vince is a genius. If it goes bad, you're a dumbass. So, he show you guys show up to the building that day and what happens? Um, Jeff went in and met with Vince and then, uh, met with Jr. and they, either they got him a check that day for whatever it was that he wanted. And he went out he did the match of China, put her over like a million bucks and left. And I remember, you know, Jeff coming up and by this time, you know, Jeff and I had really gotten over all of our stuff and we were cool. And I remember him coming up and he said goodbye to every single person in the building that night. And Jeff's version, I shouldn't speak for him. The version I've heard 
that is that Jeff just wanted what was owed to him. And that sometimes some pay-per-view residuals and some house show checks and all that would kind of trail. And he was concerned that if he went and showed up on WCW TV, given the circumstance and the Monday night war and all that, that some of that money would have been even slower to come if it ever came at all. So he just wanted whatever he had already earned in one lump sum that night. Is that to the best of your understanding the way it went down? That's the best of my understanding. Yeah. From, from Jeff's side. Yes. And, and frankly, I don't, I don't disagree with that. You know what I mean? I no. don't disagree with him wanting that. I, I, I don't disagree with it either. I just my, think it's funny that the na- that the narrative gets pushed out there, um, that he held Vince up for a bunch of money. He didn't hold him up for a bunch of money. He wanted what he had earned. But again, at the time, it was he held Vince up and he wasn't going to go out until he got his money. And at the time, you know, it all it all got put on Jr. And it is not, you know, hundred percent, man. It's that one can't be put on Jr. Uh, that one was Vince, you know, trying trying to salvage something and make it all work. Hey guys, it's the hardcore legend Mick Foley here, and I need to call a quick timeout, a brief timeout, because I wanted to tell your listeners what I have been telling Foley is Pod listeners for a while now about all the cool things happening over on adfreeshows.com. On the debut episode of Making the Town, Lumini takes us through the memorable matches and moments of the famed ECW arena, including one that was never seen. Something very special happened after the power went off. Uh, Paul Heyman went out into the ring and spoke to the crowd without a microphone. And the crowd just stayed quiet and listened. And he gave the most heartfelt thank you to that crowd that night. And uh, the biggest shame of it is there's no footage of it because the power went out. On an all-new Tuesday with the Taskmaster, Kevin Sullivan talks about what some of the greatest factions of all time have in common. Four horsemen, four guys mm. when they're in the strongest. NWO, four guys when they're at the strongest. And then Bloodline, four guys. But they also had a manager, each one of them. JJ, Eric, and Paul E. That's just a small taste, a sampling, if you will, of what we have waiting for you. With four levels to choose from. See for yourself why ad-free shows is the best value in wrestling today. Sign up now at adfreeshows.com. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.